Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Between the 9th and 12th of February, 1942, a sadistic sexual maniac stalked London's West End, brutally murdering four women, Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oakley, Margaret Florence Lowe, and Doris Junet, and strangling two others, Greta Hayward and Catherine Mulcahy. And as much as the government kept a lid on any stories which could cause hysteria, none of the Blackout Ripper's killings made front-page news. Instead, they were relegated to small columns hidden on the inside pages. The first recorded use of the term Blackout Ripper was just one day after Evelyn Oakley's death. But with few papers taking up this salacious moniker, even though it was uttered amongst the locals, almost as if he was a bogeyman, as soon as the trial was over, the case files were archived, the story was lost, the victims were forgotten, and the Blackout Ripper didn't reappear in print until the mid-1950s, when a resurgence in true crime led to these stories being sensationally and inaccurately retold. And although the Blackout Ripper had echoes of the infamous Jack the Ripper case 54 years earlier, by the turn of 1942, not only had cinema audiences become incredibly savvy having been raised on a diet of sensational thrillers and the tired clichés of the tabloid press, but by living under the constant threat of the Nazi invasion, with a terrifying barrage of bombs raining down from the skies, soldiers and civilians being slaughtered in their millions, and ordinary people witnessing death on their doorsteps on an almost daily basis. In the grand scheme of things, the bloody murders of the Blackout Ripper were insignificant during wartime London. And so, once again, one of Britain's most sadistic spree killers disappeared into the darkness and his name was almost forgotten. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part six of the full, true, and untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing outside West End Central Police Station on Savile Row, W1. A tall, grey, drab, but imposing seven-storey concrete monstrosity just off Regent Street. And although police stations are supposed to instill into a nervous victim a reassuring sense of safety, having a flat, featureless facade like a mummified face a multitude of black shiny windows like a spider's eye, and an ominously wide main door, lying dead centre, like the dark gaping mouth of a starving snake. West End Central evokes an intake of breath, a tightness in the chest, and the spackling of the anal sphincter. 
built in 1940 to support local police stations like Vine Street, Bow Street and Great Marlborough Street as a wartime crime wave swept through the city. Sadly, West End Central is now defunct as a working police station. And although it is still used as a local support unit, being full of coppers, panda cars and riot vans, the glory days are now gone and the good old London Bobby has been relegated to posing for tourist photos, letting pregnant ladies whittle in their helmets and having American tourists repeatedly ask them Excuse me, sir. Can you tell me the way to Leicester Square? And other such places that they deliberately mispronounce just to piss us off. Such as Edinburgh, Worcestershire, and of course, Lugerberg, which, for those of us who actually speak English, is Loughborough. And yet, although West End's central police station is now nothing more than an admin block, it was here, on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, where Greta Hayward gave the police a description of the man who had attacked her. But little would she know that these details would lead to the capture of one of London's most prolific spree killers who was known as the Blackout Ripper. The mug of milky tea was warm and soothing as Greta raised it to her trembling lips, most of which she spilled as her hands violently shook. And yet as reassuring as its sweetness was, even swallowing the smallest of gulps caused Greta to wince in pain, as the tea trickled down her swollen throat and an ominous purpley-yellow outline of a left hand formed across her bruised neck. And although her attacker was still out there, somewhere, possibly prowling the back streets of Soho and Piccadilly, Inside interview room two of West End Central Police Station, Greta was safe. As she gave a detailed description to Detective Inspector Clarence Jeffrey, a semi-senior detective whose remit was muggings, robberies and violent assaults, which this most definitely was, as well as murders. So, for D.I. Jeffrey... With divisional surgeon Dr. Alexander Baldy having confirmed that her injuries were consistent with strangulation, with Greta having provided an accurate sketch of the airman, aided by John Shine's credible witness statement, and the swift discovery of her 8-inch torch and her stolen handbag, with the paper money missing, although none of these items retained any fingerprints owing to the wet weather, Greta's attacker was quickly identified by the unique military serial number he had written in indelible ink inside his Royal Air Force-issued gas respirator. With a kind smile, tired eyes and a world-weary face, which had barely slept in several days, as every time he blinked, the ripped, splayed and mutilated body of Evelyn Oatley flashed before his eyes, having witnessed the horror on Wardour Street just two days before. D.I. Jeffrey reassured Greta that this was an open and shut case, and they should have her attacker in custody by the morning. Having deduced that the airman was stationed at the nearby RAF Aircrew Reception Centre in Regent's Park, D.I. Jeffrey telephoned Corporal William Crook, the orderly corporal in charge of Abbey Lodge, where the aircrew were stationed. He confirmed that the serial number of 525-987 belonged to leading aircraftman Gordon Frederick Cummings, a 24-year-old blue-eyed, fair-haired airman and that being under investigation for a possible robbery and assault, 
D.I. Jeffrey instructed the orderly corporal to place Cummings under arrest until the arrival of the police. Of course, to D.I. Jeffrey, there were elements of this case which didn't make any sense, such as, why would a total stranger want to attack Greta Haywood? Why a robber would treat his victim to supper first? Why, if this was an attempted murder, did he not bring any weapons with him? And why there were several scrapes and a few odd fragments of grey brick mortar inside of his gas respirator, which didn't match any wall found in or near where Greta had been attacked. But then again, not all cases are neat. So, as D.I. Jeffrey prepared the necessary paperwork for the attack on Greta Haywood, as a seasoned detective, he knew that if this actually ended up in court, which many cases, for various reasons, don't, even with the evidence and the statements they had, the best Cummings would be convicted of would be the lesser charge of grievous bodily harm and sentenced to a few months in prison. Or more likely, with him being an airman, this being wartime, and especially if this was his first offence, he may get off with just a fine. But first, they would need to find him. As with Gordon Frederick Cummings not asleep in his bed, and the logbook at Abbey Lodge confirming that he hadn't returned from a night out, that meant that somewhere across the West End, still stalking the city streets, was the Blackout Ripper. It may seem strange, sinister, or even stupid, but at 2am, on Friday the 13th of February 1942, barely a few hours after he had committed a brutal murder, and two attempted murders, that Gordon Frederick Cummings would return to Piccadilly Circus. But that's exactly what he did. By that ungodly hour, Piccadilly Circus was dark, cold, and deathly quiet. So with the streets speckled with a smattering of police constables, on the lookout for anyone suspicious, whether muggers eyeing up drunken marks, peepers perving through sexy ladies' keyholes, and lost servicemen who accidentally ask for directions from lone women who just happened to be prostitutes. It's almost inconceivable that Cummins would flock here, like some kind of homicidal pigeon. But he did. I mean, he could have picked literally anywhere in the whole of London's West End to return to. But instead, being slightly drunk, strangely bored, and more than a little arrogant, Cummings headed back to Piccadilly Circus, the place where murdered prostitutes Evelyn Oatley and Margaret Florence Lowe were last seen, where mutilated sex worker Doris Junet was heading that night, where that very evening he had picked up feisty Irish woman Catherine Mulcahy, who kicked six shades of shit out of his guts. And where, just five hours earlier, in a doorway just one street away, he had robbed, assaulted and strangled Greta Haywood. A woman who was still alive, had seen his face, knew his history and at whose feet he had dropped his ridiculously unique gas respirator, and who now was barely a six-minute walk away at West End Central Police Station. And yet still, like a bad smell in a blocked toilet, Cummings returned to Piccadilly Circus. 
Oh yes, Piccadilly Circus was the perfect place for a wanted murderer to blend in. If you excuse the fact that he had cuts on his left hand, scuff marks on his boots, that the police had his missing gas respirator, and would soon have the belt to his blue tunic, which he had misplaced in Catherine Mulcahy's flat. And as long as you entirely ignore the fact that his blue Royal Air Force uniform, which he was wearing right at that very moment, was splattered with the blood of Doris Junet. There was nothing suspicious about Gordon Frederick Cummings at all. So it made perfect sense for him to be in Piccadilly Circus. But it was there on the north side of Piccadilly Circus, right outside of the notorious Café Monaco, that he picked up another prostitute, hopped in a taxi with her, and in a move which, once again, was either strange, sinister, or just plain stupid, he headed back to her flat, which, given the irony of where he'd just been, was quite possibly in the second worst place in the whole of the West End for the Blackout Ripper to return to. Her flat was in Paddington and her name was Doreen Lytton. As the taxi chugged back along the desolate darkness of the West End, Doreen Lytton a recently married mother of two, housewife and part-time prostitute, sat in the taxi's back seat with Cummins, unable to see the deep red blood on his dark blue clothes, as in the darkness, everything looked black. Having slugged back one too many whiskies, he was clearly tipsy, But unlike her usual clients, who, having got her alone, on the back seat, in a taxi, would feverishly fondle and grope this lone female to satisfy their strange sexual urges. But this one seemed different. He was quiet, calm and distant. And as he stared out of the window, watching the world go by, as the taxi passed by Maison Lyonnaise and turned right onto the all-too-familiar site of Edgware Road, Cummings politely inquired, Can I spend an hour with you? I'll give you three pound. To which Doreen said, Yeah, okay. As in his company, she felt safe. Moments later, The taxi dropped them off at Porchester Place, two streets south of Catherine Mulcahy's flat at 28 Southwick Street, where the police had recently been, taken a statement and picked up the missing belt to his blue tunic, and three streets southeast of 187 Sussex Gardens, where the mutilated body of Doris Junet would lay undiscovered for the next 17 hours. And as they walked through to Polygon Mews, Doreen unlocked her door and welcomed into her flat the Blackout Ripper. Being a small first floor flat rented solely for sex work, it was basic, drab and fitted with only the bare essentials such as a bed with a sheet, a table with a candlestick, a washstand with a packet of razor blades, and a wardrobe full of clothes, hats, curling tongs, and a collection of kitchen cutlery. And having put the pounds on the mantelpiece, behind a framed photograph of her two beloved babies, Doreen popped a shilling in the coin slot of her gas fire to warm up the flat as she started to undress. But being slumped on her bed, 
his tired face all sunken, his bloodshot eyes all sullen, and expelling a deep exhale of exhaustion, Cummins shook his head and calmly said, That won't be necessary. I only want to talk. I've been drinking too much. And so, being unable to perform, Doreen sat in her flat on an armchair opposite the West End's most prolific spree killer and serial sexual sadist. And for an hour, over a nice warm cup of tea, they just sat and chatted. Doreen would later state that he was polite, calm and courteous. A real gentleman who sat quietly, listened intently and truly seemed to care about her life. As with a genuinely warm smile and a twinkle in his eyes, she showed him the photograph of her beloved family. A husband, a wife and their two kids. And the more that they talked... With her maternal instincts kicking in, Doreen felt pity for him. During that very pleasant hour together, nothing immoral took place, and they both remained clothed, seated and apart. Being honest with Doreen, Cummings apologised for his lack of libido, and reassured her that he definitely did fancy her, but that the real reason for being here was simply to pass an hour or two, as on tonight of all nights, he was in big trouble. Of course, during this conversation, he never once mentioned that he was a deeply disturbed sexual sadist, who over the last few days had strangled and tortured four women, sliced, ripped and filleted their skins, had taken a deeply disturbing level of pleasure in disfiguring their genitals, into which he had inserted a series of phallic household objects, having then posed each woman like morbid mannequins, stolen a creepy collection of souvenirs, and let two women live who, just like Doreen, knew most of his life story. No, instead, Cummins was concerned with more pressing matters. As being several hours late for his 10.30 curfew back at Abbey Lodge, having misplaced a blue belt to his RAF tunic and lost his serial-numbered gas respirator, all of which were chargeable offences under the Royal Air Force's Code of Conduct. Leading aircraftman Gordon Frederick Cummings, who was only in London on a three-week course, was less concerned with his brutal murders and was more concerned about these minor misdemeanours as any black mark against his name could seriously jeopardise his chance of ever becoming an RAF pilot. With the hour almost up and his three pounds spent, taking pity on his plea, Doreen handed the airman an almost identical gas respirator in a beige canvas bag that she had found just one week before. He thanked her for the tea, took her phone number saying that he'd love to see her again and at a little before four o'clock in the morning, Doreen Lytton waved goodbye to the Blackout Ripper as he disappeared into the darkness. Today, Abbey Lodge, with its Art Deco stylings, wrought iron gates, and intricate gold inlaid doors, is a stunning six-storey Georgian mansion block for the supremely wealthy. Situated in the exclusive northwest corner of Regent's Park, with flats selling for just a measly three to twelve million pounds each. But in 1942, having been requisitioned by the military, Abbey Lodge was known as Number 3 Reception Centre, where trainee pilots for the Royal Air Force were stationed. 
Although stationed at Abbey Lodge, Cummings resided at the newly built apartment on St. James's Close, on the north side of Regent's Park. But with armed sentries positioned on all the doors, added security patrolling the perimeter, especially the fire escapes, which airmen, having missed their curfews, would often climb up and try and sneak into their flats unnoticed, with a higher risk of him being shot if he tried to break in. With no other options, Cummings approached the main entrance of Abbey Lodge. From the darkness of the doorway, into his startled face, the hollow muzzle of a Lee Enfield .303 rifle was aimed. As air cadets, Civil Wolfenden and David Alfred Arch challenged Cummings. Playing it cool, Cummings beamed a winning smile, showed the sentries his identification card, clarified his name, rank and serial number, and following strict orders to detain Cummings on site, he was swiftly marched into the guardroom. Entering the guardroom, Cummings gulped, knowing he was in deep shit, when he was confronted by Corporal Charles Johnson, the orderly sergeant with an overpowering smell of body odour and starch, whose long thin fingers strummed on the battered logbook, and Corporal William Crook, the fresh-faced, squat-framed and spud-headed orderly corporal who had taken the call from D.I. Jeffrey of West End Central. Feigning ignorance, having smeared on his best poker face, Cummins casually inquired, What's all this about? To which orderly corporal Crook replied, A woman's been attacked in Piccadilly. Your respirator was found at the scene. But without missing a beat, Cummings let out an audible sigh and uttered, Oh, thank God for that. He tapped the black gas respirator in the beige canvas bag, which was slung over his left shoulder. And having reassured both orderlies that this was nothing more than a silly mix-up, Cummins was escorted on a 15-minute walk back to his billets. Still partially under construction, Cummings was billeted at St. James Close, a seven-storey brown-brick Art Deco building situated on Prince Albert Road on the northern perimeter of Regent's Park. And although he was not permitted to leave the premises until the police arrived, at no time during his detention was he ever searched, supervised, locked in, or even placed under armed guard. At roughly 4.50am on Friday the 13th of February 1942, Cummings quietly crept into flat 24 on the first floor of St. James's Close, trying not to wake his buddies, who slept as soundly as seven men could, on wire-sprung cots with scratchy bedsheets. But as silent as he was, he was desperate to talk. Having shaken his bunk buddy awake, with Flight Sergeant Raymond Snellis noticing that it was still dark and that Cummings was fully dressed, he groggily asked, Where have you been? To which Cummings replied, I'm in the shit. Someone swapped me respirator and it was found at the scene of a crime. But being unimpressed and needing his extra hour of sleep, Snellis simply rolled over, farted, and nodded off. And so, for almost a whole hour, amongst a sea of sleeping airmen, Cummins was unobserved. Having been alerted of his arrival, the police were on their way to question Cummings. But with this being a simple assault and robbery charge, with clear evidence, corroborated witness statements, and their only suspect being held inside a secure military location, given that the police had more pressing matters to deal with, 
like a sadistic maniac who so far had brutally murdered two women in the West End. With two more bodies still to be discovered, there was no real rush to arrest Cummings. So what he did during that hour would determine the course of the rest of his life. It would be the difference between employment and unemployment, prison and freedom, and even life and death. What did the police really know? Was this about the assault? Or was this about the murders? Did they only know about Greta Haywood? Had Catherine Mulcahy blabbed? Or had they linked him to the murders of Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley? And would later link him to Margaret Florence Lowe and Doris Junet? Did the police know more than they were saying? Or could Gordon Frederick Cummings outwit the police? Time was on his side, but the clock was ticking. At 5.45am on Friday the 13th of February 1942, Detective Charles Bennett and Detective Sergeant Thomas Shepard arrived at Flat 27 at St James's Close to interview leading aircraftman Gordon Frederick Cummings, who was nonchalantly lying on his bunk, fully clothed and smoking a cigarette from a silver cigarette case. As he casually greeted the plain-clothed officers with a courteous, Good morning. Having established Cummins' identity using his military card, Detective Bennett stated, Your respirator has been found by the side of a woman who had been badly assaulted, and you answer the description of a man who she described. To which Cummins simply nodded and said nothing. Is that your respirator, sir? Detective Bennett inquired pointing to the black rubber gas mask in the beige canvas bag on his bunk, which just hours before Doreen Lytton had given him. But knowing full well that the serial number etched inside the gas mask didn't match his own, Cummins replied, No, I, I picked that one up at the Universal Brasserie. Someone must have picked up mine by mistake, so I took this one. With Cummins fitting the description, Detective Bennett stated, I'm arresting you for causing grievous bodily harm to Mrs. Greta Hayward on St. Alban Street on the evening of Thursday the 12th of February 1942. Cummings was cautioned and handcuffed, but made no reply. Calmly stubbing out his cigarette underfoot, the officers escorted their subject to the awaiting police car. His scuffed black boots making a very slight and unusually flat sound as he walked, which, amongst the hubbub, nobody noticed. At 9am a few hours later, having been transferred to West End Central Police Station, Cummins, who was composed, polite, helpful, and almost jokey at the ridiculousness of the situation, was questioned by Detective Inspector Clarence Jeffrey, who stated, I understand you deny being the man who assaulted Mrs. Hayward. It will therefore be necessary to hold you for an identification parade. But confronted with the overwhelming evidence against him, the gas respirator etched with his serial number of 525987. The witness statements by Greta Haywood and John Shine. The scuff marks on his left hand. The bloodstains on his shirt. And having found a small slip of paper in his greatcoat pocket, on which had been written Collindale 6622, which was Greta Haywood's home phone number, Cummins quickly confessed, stating, No, that, that won't be necessary. I am the man. I was drinking very heavily that night, uh, and I remember being with a woman in Piccadilly 
but uh, I can't remember anything else that happened. I deeply regret what has happened and I am willing to pay her compensation. Cummings reread his statement, confirmed its accuracy and signed it with his left hand. As was standard protocol, Cummings agreed to be searched by Detective Bennett in the presence of D.I. Jeffrey, and his unremarkable personal effects included two one-pound notes in his wallet, three shillings and sixpence in his pocket, his RAF identity card, a few personal letters on RAF notepaper, a silver cigarette case, a greeny-blue comb with several teeth missing. And in the other gas respirator given to him by Doreen Lytton, he had stashed eight one-pound notes and a gold wristwatch. None of which seemed strange, suspicious, or even out of the ordinary. A worn leather wallet, a few crinkled pound notes, his military ID... A slightly battered silver cigarette case, an old broken comb, and a gold wristwatch. The type that married couples, like Mr. and Mrs. Cummins, would give each other on a special anniversary. To the untrained eye, they were nothing more than a random assortment of everyday items that most men would carry, and which meant nothing to the police. But to Cummings, they were personal items, too precious to dispose of or to destroy during a vital last hour alone. They were mementos of his morbid memories and souvenirs of his sadistic crimes. On the afternoon of Friday the 13th of February 1942, a grinning Gordon Frederick Cummings appeared at Bow Street Magistrates Court where he was charged with a minor offence of causing grievous bodily harm to Mrs. Greta Haywood. As a condition of this charge, Cummings would be remanded in custody at Brixton Prison until his court appearance on the 12th of March, 1942. If found guilty of GBH, having already spent a month in prison awaiting his trial, although this custodial sentence would be inconvenient, Cummings would most likely be released owing to time served, imposed with a small fine, and having missed the remainder of his three-week course in Regent's Park. With the Royal Air Force in need of strong young men to fight off the impending German invasion, Cummings would most likely be demoted and redeployed elsewhere, where he could retrain as a pilot. And once again, into the darkness of the West End, the Blackout Ripper would disappear. And as he sat there, smoking in the privacy of his small prison cell in Brixton Prison, as his slight grin slowly morphed into a beaming smirk, having outwitted both the Metropolitan Police, Scotland Yard, and left a bloody trail of terror across the West End, with four women brutally mutilated, and two women attacked, all in just four days. Cummins knew that he had literally got away with murder. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget to join us next week for the seventh part of the true story of the Blackout Ripper. Don't forget if you fancy becoming a Patreon supporter, receiving exclusive access to original Murder Mile content including crime scene photos, murder location videos and patron-only Extra Mile episodes for the first 20 cases, as well as ensuring the future of Murder Mile, and you can do this by simply clicking on the link in the show notes. 
Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Next week's episode is part 7 of The Blackout Ripper. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello? 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 Hello, friends. Welcome to Extra Mile. I didn't forget about it then. I didn't forget what it was called. I just thought I'd put in a dramatic pause. Why? I don't know. Anyway, Extra Mile. Here we are. Um, hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, part six of the Blackout Ripper. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm going to be doing a Q&A episode uh, at the end of this for the Blackout Ripper because obviously it's a very long series uh, and there's lots of details in there so if you want to ask me any questions you can email me now not a problem at all or you can wait till the end of the series uh, message me on any social media platforms uh, pose me a question and I'll try and answer it there uh, trust me by the time we get to the end there will be lots of questions uh, hope you enjoyed that episode I thought that was quite interesting um, obviously it's moved now we've had the first four murders, and then obviously last week you had uh, the attempted murders of Greta Haywood and Catherine Mulcahy, which I thought were very interesting. And obviously now we're getting more of an insight into who Gordon Frederick Cummings, who he kind of is. Um, and that's why I wanted, really wanted to show you, um, instead of just going straight to the arrest which you could easily have done in this episode. I could easily have just gone, right, he murdered Doris, you know, he went back to Abbey Lodge or his apartment and then the police turned up. I, it could easily, we could, I could have easily written it that way, but I really wanted to show you more about who Gordon Frederick Cummings is as a person. And that's why I thought that Doreen Lytton episode, the bit was really important because she really liked him she thought he was really nice and obviously he was tired and exhausted and murder wasn't on his mind and neither was sex but 
Joe, she said he was a real gentleman. He seemed like a really nice person. He seemed really interested. He seemed to get a little bit misty-eyed when they were talking about family. So maybe there's something in his past about wanting to have a family and not being able to. Maybe that's something to do with his sex drive. Maybe that's why he's he's unable to perform. Uh, he doesn't have any kids. Um, so maybe that is it. I don't know. This is something that I'm still researching now, which hopefully I'll go into when we do the, the full episode about Gordon Frederick Cummings. Um, but I hope you enjoyed that. Um, it's slightly peaceful where I am at the moment. That was a good record, that was. Even though the, f the plane flying over now, the planes fly over every 90 seconds. So I have to do a quick burst of from the script and then I have to stop for about 30 seconds as the flights go over. It can be quite annoying and you can hear a coot outside. Coot's been rambling all day and I think someone's got some kind of tool out at the moment. Can you hear that horrible whine? Oh, it's horrible. Anyway, th this was not a bad place to record. So this episode uh, of Blackout Ripper, episode six. God, we're at episode six already. My God. Um, so how was your brain after that? Was it okay? Um, mine is fried. <laughs> um, was that the episode you were expecting? Were you expecting just uh, a shootout or a bloody end? Um, this is why I love the Blackout Ripper story because it's it, it changes too fast. It changes fast and it moves and it ducks and it goes different directions and you just think to yourself why why is this happening like why did the blackout ripper go back to piccadilly circus what is the chance of him having just murdered a woman in paddington and, and let's not forget the west end is big west end goes from hoban which is about uh, a mile to uh, a mile from the east so if you head East, a mile, is Hoban from Soho, and Paddington is about a mile and a half to the west. And he's still got a little bit more either side, so, so West End's pretty big. Why the hell did he go back to Piccadilly Circus when you can pretty much pick a prostitute anywhere? Especially as he's near, he was near Regent's Park, which is near Baker Street Station. Oh, it's near Euston as well, technically. So he could have picked up, if he wanted a prostitute, he could have gone there. But no, he went back to Piccadilly Circus, where most of his victims were last seen and he attempted to murder Greta Haywood, which was baffling. And then, as irony would have it, he picks up a prostitute, the one prostitute he picks up. And given the fact, let's not forget that he's picked a prostitute, Evelyn Oatley, on Piccadilly Circus, and she lived in Soho. I'm going to sneeze. And. Uh. <coughs> I'm light sensitive that's why that happens and then he picked up uh, Margaret Florence Lowe who's a prostitute in Piccadilly Circus and she lived just north of Soho what is the chance that he would pick up a prostitute who lived in Paddington and she lived literally one to two streets away from his from Doris Junet and Catherine Mulcahy what is the chance of that that's like fate in a kind of a weird, twisted way. So, uh, yeah, this I quite like this the way this story is uh, evolving. Um, so, um, how is your brain after that? I ask that because, obviously, I've been peppering the first four episodes with lots of little clues and evidence and bits and pieces to kind of tantalise you. Many pieces of which I, I've mentioned this before that you would kind of think... Oh, Mike's just given us too much information or, or just lots of information to, to to give it texture and rubbish like that. But it's not. Literally, you'll be going through... The, lots of different pieces of evidence are going to start coming back now. There's already some in there that hopefully you've already noticed that you that hopefully it's already triggered something. You've gone, oh, where have, I, where have I heard that before? Such as... Oh, should I mention? Yeah, the silver cigarette case. Silver cigarette case is back. Uh, money in the wallet, uh, pound notes, important for last time. Uh, greeny blue uh, comb with the several teeth missing, mm, important. Uh, brick mortar, mm, important. Uh, air respirator, he's a gas respirator, mm, very important. Um, scuffs on his fingers, mm, very important. Left hand, 
him having a left hand, well, having a left hand, using his left hand, being left-handed. Uh, it's not really a clue, <laughs> him having a left hand. Lots of people have left left hands. Uh, but just just things like that. Uh, the missing blue belt to his tunic. Oh, I'm struggling to remember them all now. But they all do crop up. And this is why this was a difficult episode to write. Because this is all the pieces coming together. And even I'm forgetting all of these pieces. Because there's, there's clues in the other episodes that haven't cropped up yet. Such as fingerprints on the can opener that he used to mutilate Evelyn Oakley fingerprints on the glass that he had of the glass of stout that he had with Margaret Florence Lowe uh, there were no fingerprints found at the Evelyn Hamilton location and none were found at the Doris Juno 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 location so uh, yeah <sighs> lots of stuff lots of stuff uh, looking forward to writing the next episode though but i really enjoyed that episode i hope you did too that was um something different that's what i'm trying to do with all these episodes is to give you something different each time uh so it feels different i've made it a little bit more jokey because it's uh, especially at the start because there's it's it's heavily ironic there's a lot of irony and coincidence that is just you would imagine that it's a, uh, not a spoof what am i thinking of a um of, a farce but uh no this is this is all true this is all as it happened um and it was kind of interesting it was nice to watch him go about his kind of uh his crimes do you know where he was he was an airman he was in town he's on picket in piccadilly circus uh we see him going to the clubs the places that you like to go uh such as brasserie um universal brasserie brass ass as we called it last week um and that he would kind of He'd see women that he'd kind of like. He'd go up to them. He'd normally be a little bit tipsy, a little bit drunk. He would have a charm about them. He was a, a relatively attractive man. They would kind of like him. Um, and then he would... Um, obviously, he would descend into kind of drunkenness and um, arrogance, I guess. Arrogance and anger at being jilted by them. But obviously you could see the other side to him there when he uh, with uh, Doreen Lytton where he, re he he wasn't interested in sex. He wasn't interested in violence, but he had a sweet side. He was really kind of interested in her. So it's a, a really interesting episode. I hope you enjoyed it. It gave you an insight into who really the Blackout Ripper was and we can watch him go about his crimes. Um, obviously, we already saw him go about the crimes in the previous episode. Uh, and we knew that this was going to happen anyway because we kind of foreshadowed it in episode four. If you listen back to episode four, you will hear that Greta Hayward and Catherine Mulcahy are there. So we know in a, in the Doris Junet episode that they're, they're going to be attacked. Obviously, I don't mention that they don't get murdered because that would sp spoil the plot. But um, I think it's interesting in there to see how we met Greta Hayward, uh, how he was very charming but quite a crude man. Um quite a confusing man in a, in a way he doesn't really seem to know who he is uh and it was interesting in that previous episode that we saw that um we saw that Greta Hayward almost died but was saved by a passerby whereas Catherine um Catherine Mulcahy almost died as well but was saved by herself with that lovely swift kick in the guts that she gave him um I think that was my favorite piece of ed editing that was with the with the music I spent a good amount of time trying to do that but obviously uh, in that episode you saw how cocky he was afterwards. He was kind of like, you know, he attacked Catherine Mulcahy, but he was quite cocky afterwards, uh, acting as if it didn't happen, and even asking the neighbours um, if they had a light. But then you see the conflict in this new episode that we've just done, where he's, it's entirely different. The cockiness isn't there, the arrogance isn't there. He's kind of, he's, he's a gentleman, as she says. What really is going on in his head? It's really hard to work that out. Um, so I thought I'd use this part in um, Extra Mile to make a clarification. Uh, in this episode, so um, Greta Haywood going from St Albans Street to West End Central Police Station, which is about a 12-minute walk, if that. Um, originally, uh, in the true, true story, what really happened, she was uh, aided there by John Shine, who came to her aid, but on the walk, his friend Joseph Nash came and helped out as well. He saw that it was a woman in distress. He came out to help as well. Um, but because Joseph Nash 
didn't find the gas mask. It was John Shiny who found the gas mask. And uh, he didn't find Greta Haywood. He just kind of turned up halfway through. Um, I've deliver deliberately removed him from the story because it just muddies the waters. So if anyone is on... If anyone is a pedant out there and is going, oh, what about Joseph Nash? I've taken him out because he doesn't add anything to the story. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't change the plot anyway. Um, so, and another really big clarification here. Um, this was something that I found out. I'd already done all the research. And something was just not sitting right in my head. And this was halfway through writing this episode. And this is sometimes why I, tr I tend to rely on my gut instincts because they tend to be you know, your subconscious is tend to tend to be sharper and better than normally I find it's better than I am it kind of knows in advance um, so any research that there is out there about Gordon Frederick Cummings the Blackout Ripper they they state that he was stationed and lived at Abbey Lodge on Regent's Park the really nice posh place that's worth you know three million pounds to 12 million pounds a flat very nice uh, so I went there, I shot the video for it. Um, but every time I visited Abbey Lodge, I kind of, I had a weird, really weird gut instinct. I kind of know when I turn up to locations and I kind of, inside me, if it's right, it feels right inside. But Abbey Lodge always left me with a weird feeling. And even though in all of the research that I've read, like there are a couple of books out there. I think there's one book about the Blackout Ripper. Uh, which I haven't read. I've had skim read. It wasn't very good. Uh, and he does appear in a couple of other anthology books about true crime, which are also shit as well. Um, they all say that he, he stayed at Abbey Lodge. But the problem is he didn't. He didn't stay at Abbey Lodge at all. He was stationed there. You can hear two coots outside fighting. Um, so... Um, this is this is what was really baffling to me. So, um, and in my, in my gut, every time I cycled past St James's Close, which is on the north side of Regent's Park, again I had a kind of gut reaction where my brain was like, "Is that where the Blackout Ripper lived?" And I'd n I'd never read anything that said it was where he lived before. There was just something inside me that was just like, I just have a feeling something's attracting me to that building. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe in psychics or any of that crap, but something was drawing me towards that building and I don't know why. Um, so um, I did some research, I did some more research on uh, Abbey Lodge and it turned out that Abbey Lodge, uh, yes it was a block of flats, but a very posh block of flats built in the late 1920s, uh, early 1930s. It was requisitioned by the RAF during World War II. Uh, they converted it into a hospital and a sick bay for any kind of injured airmen before they would be posted off to hospitals nearer to where they lived. Um, and although air crews were stationed there, which means that's where they did their training, um, in the area that they re previously called RAF Regents Park, um, none of them lived there. You had some nurses living on quarters because it was a, a hospital, partial hospital, but none of the aircrew lived there. And I had to go through a lot of um, different, not testimony for people for this case, but actually um, servicemen and women who served at Abbey Lodge during the war. And they all confirmed that it was a hospital, but they didn't live there. Very few of them lived there. And most of the uh, servicemen were billeted in other buildings such as just around the corner of Viceroy House and St. James's Close. Um, so I had to go back to uh, the National Archives down in Kew. Uh, I reordered out the Blackout Ripper file again, that big old 1600 page file. And I started going through all the pages again because it, cause it's remember what I said before that sometimes if someone says um, a building is on Piccadilly, uh, Piccadilly Circus and it might not be on Piccadilly Circus it might be near Piccadilly Circus or it might be in Piccadilly but not on Piccadilly Circus itself so people's recollection of what they say something is might not be true so people saying like a lot of these these witness statements the police said we went to Abbey Lodge we called the orderly corporal at Abbey Lodge these are all in the statement saying Abbey Lodge but Abbey Lodge is on Park Road and 
St. James, uh, St. James Close is on a Prince Albert Road, which are very near each other. They're both perimeter roads, but on different parts. One's on the west and one's on the north. So uh, I went into the National Archives file, started going through, saw all this conflict in the different witness statements where people said, we went to Abbey Lodge on um, on Park Road. We went to Abbey Lodge on... We went to Abbey Lodge slash St. James Close. And I double-double-checked to make sure that the other building was not called Abbey Lodge, and it wasn't, and I made sure that the building on Park Road was Abbey Lodge in the 1930s, which it was, and there wasn't another building on the perimeter road called Abbey Lodge, which there wasn't. And then finally, halfway through the the, um, Blackout Ripper file, um, when eventually, spoilers, when eventually it ended up in court, spoilers, um, there was a policeman who was very good at, very good, uh, very good art, and for the case, he did not only a diagram of the bedroom that uh, the Blackout Ripper, Gordon Frederick Cummings, actually lived in, the where all the beds were placed, which I'll post on social media so you can see that. But he also did a map of where um, where the Blackout Ripper's flat was, where he stayed. And it wasn't Abbey Lodge at all. It, even though it wasn't marked, it didn't say what the building was. They'd clearly defined it, and it was on St. James's Close on Prince Albert Road just by the Regent's Canal and that's and that's so weird because that's every time I go past that whether on my boat or my bike I always go I wonder if that's Blackout Ripper's house so it's weird how your brain leads you down a track so yeah this this is when am I recording this this is month what day is it today this is a Friday I'm about three days late recording this because I but I wanted to get the research right um there's nothing worse than going through and finding research that's in- incorrect. Even with, I, I had to rewrite the last episode. I, I recorded it and then I found out something which was um, in some of the documentation it said that a gas mask was taken from Doris Junet's flat. Um, and although they, didn't, although they didn't clarify what it was, I assumed it was the gas mask that... Uh, the blackout blackout ripper has stolen it to replace the one that was missing that he had left at the scene of Greta Haywood. Um, but that was incorrect. When I actually went back and went through the archive files again, I found a re oh god, it was tiny. It was just like barely a line, ro- a line or two long. But it was from the police where they'd gone to find who the serial number belonged to. From the, uh, from the gas mask given to him by Doris, Doreen Lytton. And it was actually in Doreen Lytton's testimony that she mentioned this, that uh, I found this out. So I had to, I had to re-edit the, um, the uh, Doris Juno episode. Um, but that's why I like being two weeks ahead. Because um, it gives me a chance to make re-edits when I need to. Um, anyway, I hope that was interesting. Um We've got part seven next week. Uh, that will be spoilers. Um, the trial of the Blackout Ripper. Um, but how does he get? A, how does he get convicted? Mm, all the evidence is there. So um, I hope you enjoy it. Go through the episodes. Uh, see if you can work it out. Message me uh, on any of the social media sites to let me know what you think the outcome is going to be. What the really key pieces of evidence are going to be. Um, yeah and i I, uh, hope you enjoyed that and um i look forward to hearing from you uh about this episode have yourself a great day and stay safe bye-bye if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.